This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is show number 46 for Wednesday, October 27th. I am Paul Fox, and as usual, joining me from some spot, a secret location, somewhere in the Fragrant Harbor, is Mr. Kevin Ma. I am in a secured location, Paul, so you can't find me. Yeah. Yes. The, The authorities are desperately seeking you because of your festival attendance. That's right, plus my, uh... My 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 criticism against certain filmmakers. Yeah. Speaking of criticism, you were you were were you twittering something about uh, some incident that happened at the fest? Uh, some, some one of the like one of the ushers or something. Yes. Yes. If um, do you go to the the Broadway Cinematheque much, Paul? I've been there a couple times. Yeah. There's always uh, a certain usher who's kind of a, a chubby usher who's uh, who works at the the ticket counter or not the ticket counter but he works at the uh, tears up tickets. If you if you recognize him, because when I whenever I go to a festival, I see him, or whenever I go to a cinema tech, I see him, and he's he's uh, seems like a nice guy. He's been there for a long time. Uh, all three years I've been going to the cinema tech, I've seen him there, and um, he always he always likes to you know when there's a festival screening here and there's a Q and A he he actually does an effort to to ask people to stay for the Q and A because you know it's it is you know because people benefit from these things now uh, in fact he did it to me this past uh, Monday night when I had to leave for a film and he was um, he was asking me to please stay and there's a Q and A and I had to you know I felt bad but uh, what happened was that a, there, on Sunday um, there was a the screening of the documentary uh, "Let the Wind Carry Me" about um, the doc- cinematographer Mark Lee, and what they did was that because there was a seminar after that show, because he's the focus of the retrospective this year. Now I bought that show just because I know there was a talk afterwards. But what the Cinematheque does is that they decide to play it in two houses, and then bring the audience from the other house and pack them into the original house, and uh, essentially let them all sit. Um, in the middle aisle or in the middle, the little aisle on on the ground, in order to fit them all in. And I'm guessing that the the time between the end of the film and beginning of the seminar is quite chaotic. And what someone wrote on the Hong Kong film blog was that he he was acting very mean or or somewhat let's say I'm not so hospitali- hospitable. Um, and you know it's kind of sad that he has to be he he has to be called out like that on you know on the on a Hong Kong's most read film blog and even though you don't you know it's he didn't name the exact person or the exact leader or exact showing but if you read the things they talk about Sunday a seminar at a popular film festival you know who it is 
And since he's such a nice guy, he's actually one of the few people who actually, you know, does customer service in, in a theater, in a cinema. Um, you just kind of feel bad that he, he's brought, 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 uh, called out like that. Um, so whoever reads this or understands the blog, um, he's actually quite a nice guy. And I hope that uh, he continues to work at the Cinematheque. Mm, yeah, it sounds like it was just a, a, probably a bad idea to begin with to bring people from a second house and pack them into another house that was already full right um so yeah it's probably yeah. just a bad situation and you know having a difficult time with people management i'm actually surprised they would do that i would think there'd be some kind of a you know some kind of fire regulation or something having people just sit there in that middle middle aisle on the floor you know yeah um, but i guess you know they've got to do what they can during during some of these festivals because there's really limited space it was a bad idea to open a second house in the first place. I mean, they opened a second house and said that, oh, just there was seminar, so you know what they were going to do because the festival wanted picture opportunities. They wanted photo opportunities. They wanted, you know, people to say, look, look, this we are so packed and we got all these people in here because our festival was so popular and they, they're, they're desperate for the publicity. But that's terrible for the staff because you, got, you, don't, you don't have enough staff to handle the situation. Um, and like you said, it is against, is kind of a dangerous situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are here to talk about festivals and films and other stuff. We talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of things in between on this show. Before we get into much else though, let's talk about some news. All right. This first bit of news, uh, just kind of is, I guess, for us, would be considered breaking news. Um, mm-hmm. Just as I'm on the way home, I get a little email from sort of our ringleader, Mr. Ross Chen, from the lovehongkongfilm.com uh, site. And our little movie group that typically goes to see local films on Thursdays, he says, our planned film for this week, Don Quixote, is a no-go because there are no English subtitles attached to this 3D feature. And so our plan for watching Don Quixote was scrubbed I'm a little bit disappointed because I, you know, I, I like the story of Don Quixote and um, it's a classic piece of fiction. And I'm a bit surprised that the film, they, they would release this film without subtitles. Um, I think this is um, a situation where Fimco does not have much expectation in the film. It didn't do very well in China. Um, and word of mouth has been very, very negative. Um, and I think what Filmco, the distributor, is trying to do is to get as much money as possible without with spending as little money as possible. And putting on English subtitles is extra money because I think there are no English subtitles in the China print. Um, and plus, you know, free admission prices are high. So, and this is this is a simply a case of a distributor trying to save as much money on a film that they 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 figured would not matter much if they didn't put English subtitles. Um, that's it's kind, kind of a sad su- situation. Kind of surprising because is isn't this? I mean, last week we talked about the Child's Eye, which is billed as sort of the first Hong Kong 3D feature, full length feature. Isn't this supposed to be the first uh, full length Chinese mainland film that's a 3D feature? That's right, and um, I think for the Chinese distributor, it's all about you know the glory in China. I don't think it matters how it does outside because to them, oh, this is China's first 3D film. Uh, it, it shows that 
we can do it in domestic market. So they really, I think they're really concentrated on how it does in domestic market more than how it is in, say, Hong Kong. Um, Filmco is only opening a very limited number of screens, I think maybe 15 or 16, um, about half the screen uh, screen count of a normal uh, normal film. So um, uh, I'm a little disappointed because usually Chinese films, even Chinese films have English subtitles here in Hong Kong. Um, but for this situation, I mean, it's not that hard to type in subtitles, but I guess the whole idea of having to hire someone to translate the subtitles correctly and, you know, that, that costs money. And for the shooter who expect, who hasn't had a hit in years in Hong Kong and don't expect a hit coming with this film, um, for them, I guess it's a cost cutting measure that must be done. Mm. Well, that's too bad. So if you are, uh, in here locally and listening to the program in here in Hong Kong and you are planning to at some point go out and see this, um, unless you're fluent in Mandarin or uh, literate in Chinese so you can read the Chinese subtitles, you may want to uh, think twice before you spend the 3D ticket price to catch this film. You might just want to wait for the DVD, which I'm hoping will have subtitles at that point. All right, our next news up for this week. Uh, the new film Black and White uh, has been cast and has a budget. This news coming from Film Business Asia. Um, this is a film directed by Tsai Yu Sun, if, I, if I'm saying his name correctly. Um, it's based on a Taiwan TV series of the same name, Black and White, starring uh, Vic Chow and Mark Zhou. Chow, yeah. Yeah, or Chow, yeah. Um, who, one of the, the characters, uh, Vic Chow, does not appear in the prequel, it says, and they play rookie detectives, and, but he will be joined by some big name, big names from both mainland China and Hong Kong, Huang Bo, um, our friend Kozo's, uh, favorite star, will be <laughs> in it, Angela Baby, um, is also planning to have a role in it, and Terry Kwan and Ivy Chen, and it looks like a basic cops and robbers kind of a drama based on the uh, storyline that they give a synopsis of over on the site. And it says that, among other things, it's got a stunt team from the film Taken and visual effects uh, staff from the movie Kill Bill. So it could be pretty exciting. I don't know. I'm kind of getting a turning point kind of a vibe here. You know, it's kind of because turning point was based on a, a local Hong Kong TV drama series, and then it got very popular because of the character of Laughing Brother, Laughing Go, and so they decided to take Michael Tse and make an entire prequel to that um, as a film with some big-name actors like Anthony Wong and Francis Ng. Do you get that same kind of vibe with this, Kevin? Um, not exactly, because uh, one, um, black and white, I, never, I haven't seen the show, but uh, I've seen bits of it, pieces and pieces, and I've done some research about it. And it's um, it was quite a big thing in Taiwan. It's a very, very popular show. Um, and it dealt with some very big-budget action-type uh, stories, including you know, terrorism and uh, cops and robbers, of course, um, and things like that. So it kind of had feature film potential in the first place. Now, the prequel, why it didn't include Vic Chow, is uh, from what I know from what the gossip rack says, is that um, there's some kind of falling out between the former uh, boy band member and the rest of the cast, um, which is which might be why they had to turn to the prequel. I mean, I thought that maybe doing a prequel would be the best way to get 
you know, unfamiliar audiences, especially since they're going to Pan Asia and route with this budget, to for audience who never saw the show to get on board. Uh, that would have been smart. But apparently the the true quote unquote true reason why Vic Chow isn't onto this uh, on a gossip gossip level is that because he had a falling out because he didn't get the best actor award uh, instead his co star did. Um, now as far as the film goes, um, like I said, the because the the, the series really offers some uh, big budget action type story. Um, I think that kind of gives me a little hope that this film might deliver. But um, if I if I remember correctly, uh, Taiwan hasn't really churned out a big action action film in recent years, right, Paul? Yeah, I can't think of any offhand. Exactly, and this is a TV director doing this. Uh, make, I think it's making his feature film debut. So those are two things that kind of give me pause. One is that yeah, Taiwan is not really exactly um, uh, uh, um, good at this or had much experience at this as much as Hong Kong, and two, the the the, the behind the scenes um, team isn't really. Um, established in making feature films. So, but the budget and um, you know the thing about a seven forty seven and the whole idea of they're trying to aim for a franchise, uh, and the idea, the plot itself, the story itself, um, those things are kind of fighting each other. My expectations in my mind. All right, our next bit of news is also coming from Film Biz Asia. And, and that is Ang Lee is going to be shooting the adaption of the award-winning novel Life of Pi uh, with production to start in January and location shooting to include both Taiwan and India. And this adventure will be Lee's first uh, entry into the stereoscopic 3D film market. Um, I, now, I haven't read the book. I know the book's wildly popular. They give a short synopsis of the story. Basically, it's about a son who uh, gets lost at sea for a period of days, and I guess uh, we, along with him on the lifeboat is a is a hungry Bengal tiger. So it sounds like a pretty interesting premise. Um, I'm not really seeing the 3D aspect of it. You know, I mean, something like Piranha 3D, you could understand. Uh, but Boy Lost at Sea 3D, I don't know, unless there's something that goes on in the novel that I'm, uh, that I'm not familiar with. Maybe, there's, maybe he starts hallucinating and fantasizing during this period, and um, then 3D might you know, very well be useful. But do you know much about the story, Kevin? Um, no, I never read the book. Um, but from what I see you know, about the shooting locations, they're gonna be, it's going to be quite an interesting story visually. And... Um, I'm not so sure about Ang Lee shooting in 3D. He's not really known for being a, how do I say, spectacle kind of director. Um, there were other names attached before. Uh, if I remember correctly, Darren Aronofsky um, and uh, M. Night Shyamalan. Um, oh, I see. Okay, I see at the end of the story here now. John P. John P. Janet, uh, Alfonso Cuarón. Any of those three directors, actually, I would rather choose to, I would choose any of those three to bring the story instead of Ang Lee. Um, uh, don't mistake, but I, I'm not trying to say that Ang Lee's not a good director. He's a great director, but um, I think he might. I'm afraid that he might be a little obviously here of this film. Mm. You know, if M Night directed the film, though, there'd have to be a twist at the ending. <laughs> and know. M Night would probably be be the tiger. Yeah, <laughs> he's always got to have a cameo, right? All right, what's our next bit of news? Oh yes, uh, some Zoe Hark news. Zoe Hark is uh, wrapping up 
his latest production. Um, it says it's a secret. He secretly made a movie in 3D, which will be pitched, pitched for sale at the American film market um, next month. The film stars actress Charlie Young and Yunnan alongside Daniel Chan. And it's called Catching Monkey. Now, this is apparently um, a sort of colloquial reference to uh, having uh, some kind of having an illicit affair. And it also involves something to do with computer hackers. And so it sounds like it's a bit of a divergence from, you know, what we just saw, uh, Detective D. And this is sort of the in-between film between his next film, which is also going to be a big-budget stereoscopic film, uh, Flying Swords of Dragon Gate, which has a, a pretty large cast, including uh, Zhou Shen, uh, Gui Lan Mei, and it says that uh, recently uh, announced that pop star Mavis Fan from Taiwan uh, has also joined the cast. So, I don't know, what do you think about this film, Catching Monkey? Uh, it's pretty awesome. I mean, Trey Hark did this entire movie secretly uh, without any of those big publicity that usually comes with greedy. You know how um, uh, Hong Kong film producers, Chinese film producers uh, like to go, go and, you know, I'm making this big greedy movie and it's going to sell and things like that. And then here's Trey Hark going, you know, he started by doing test shots for, for the Dragon Inn movie and then made a movie out of it. Uh, it's, it's quite, it's, you know, the idea of it is quite cool. I'm just a little worried that the uh, the whole point about a thriller about uh, with a title that's a reference to the discovery of illicit affair that just brought me memories of missing. Yeah, uh, that was the last Trey Hark, uh, I suppose, thriller, and you know it wasn't very thrilling. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm a little worried, and Trey Hark again, you know, playing with uh, new technology. I'm always a little worried, especially after Legend of Zoo. Um, I'm hoping that he's still on that uh, streak that he had, he did after he had after uh, doing uh, Detective D, and that uh, he would keep up the streak all the way for the rest of his career, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But then that's being optimistic. But at least you know, at least he, he get a good, hopefully get a good couple of movies in, you know, before he goes back to his slump again. Well, I gotta say, and and this is this is not nothing to slight the guys over at uh, Film Business Asia, but when I read the title before I clicked on and opened the full article. Um, the title of the article is uh, Tsui Has Fun with Catching Monkey. And I, I was immediately excited. And then I opened it and I started reading it. And I was like, oh, it was really a letdown. Because I can remember from two or three years back reading something about Tsui Hark supposedly making a Monkey King film. And I guess it never... I actually remember on one website seeing like a teaser poster for it. And mm -hmm. it was just called Monkey, I think. It was the working title. And I never, no, nothing ever came of it. I, I guess it got pushed by the wayside or, you know, didn't get produced. He was not, you know, doing well from his previous releases. And so nothing ever came of it. And so I thought, when I saw this title, I thought, oh, maybe that project's, you know, back on. And then I was reading it in his little secret movie. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is great. He did it in secret. And, and then it turns out to be, uh, thriller, which is, you know, okay, uh, but not as exciting as my idea. Or, or You're thinking about something like Iron Monkey, right? I, Iron Monkey, actually, I thought it was about the Monkey King, because ah. uh, what I had read was that he was working on a live-action, you know, remake uh, remake of the Monkey King story uh, from the beginning, and that's so that's what I thought this was, and 
Mm. I, I was wrong. I was disappointed. All right. Next bit of news. Um, so this is a bit of odd news. Uh, also coming from Philbiz Asia, uh, Kadokawa plots Chinese revolution. And <laughs> I think you know, Great talk name. talk about timely, <laughs> timely news based with all the headlines and everything that's going on in the in the international scene right now in Asia. Um, Japanese director um, uh, Sugawara Hiroshi is going to make a drama about the friendship that existed between Chinese revolutionary Sun Yat-sen and Umaya Shokichi, uh, a, a Japanese investor who sort of helped fund Sun Yat-sen. And the working title is Revolution 1911, and it's set as a co-production between Hong Kong Salon Films and Japan's Kotokawa Group. So I, as I was reading through this article, I was just thinking... Oh boy, is this going to stir up some trouble? Hmm. You know, because for for those who know history, Sun Yat-sen was sort of the founder of the KMT, the Nationalist Party, and it was he was kind of pushed to the side in his later years, and it was overtaken by Chiang Kai-shek. And Chiang Kai-shek ultimately retreated to Taiwan, and he's sort of the villain in the mainland Chinese history. But Sun Yat-sen as a, the original reformer is still kind of venerated in mainland China. So I thought, what kind of hornet's nest is this production going to stir up? And we've mentioned <laughs> before that China's already working on the founding of a party, right? The sort of prequel mm -hmm. to founding of a republic, which is probably going to be dealing with a lot of these same characters. So I'm thinking that maybe these films could be competing against each other and we could see some... Uh, some, I don't know, some rivalry coming out around release time. What do you think, Kev? Um, from what I've, what I've been told, this um, project originated from Japan, uh, the Japanese company, and it was then then uh, the company approached the Hong Kong production company, and then that's how it got started. I think there's um, obviously a political move, or obviously kind of olive branch in a way, you know, showing, hey, Look, I mean, look, it is an honorable Chinese character that even, you know, contemporary Chinese can still look back and say he's a hero because Sayosin has gotten quite a good reputation after uh, Bodyguards and Assassin, which is the film about the uh, bodyguards protecting Senior Sun, the founding father, as he was playing the revolution. Um, so this is almost kind of like an olive branch by the Japanese to show, hey, look, the Japanese and the Chinese can work together too, and that we, the Japanese, have helped you as well. But you're right, Paul, this is definitely kind of a dangerous idea you know will the angry youths of china will they the nationalistic youth of china will they go watch this and go you know what kind of whitewashing is this how could we have you know look what the japanese did to us later uh, things like you guys it is even worse because then you betrayed us you know this is a very dangerous kind of a uh, situation here this could be this could backfire on the kadokawa uh, uh company um and the whole I'm not sure how the film is going to approach the subject, and in a way, I can already see the trailer in my head. This film being, you know, very kind of talky uh, drama, you know, a Japanese mid-budget kind of movie. Um, for me, I'm not really that excited about it. You know, the idea, the whole idea of this Japanese company trying to make a movie about the two com countries working together is kind of an interesting olive branch, but the film itself doesn't really. You know, get me excited that much. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit of a history buff, so I like 
films like this or films that are, you know, with any film, it's kind of really hard to take it as, as a historical accuracy because there's usually so much uh, creative license that's taken. But I really, you know, I look forward to these kind of things. I remember, remember um, the, was it the Sung Sisters with uh, Michelle Yeoh and um, uh, who were the other girls? And uh, uh, Maggie Chung. Yeah, Maggie Chung. I really liked that movie. And I, you know, for all the, all that we kind of nagged on it, the, the continuous meetings and, and the revisionist history, I did kind of get into watching the founding of a republic and I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what they do with the founding of a party, though I do take those with a grain of salt. Um, so, you know, I, I'm kind of somewhat excited about this, though I, I'm kind of hoping that it, they, they take sort of an even hand to it. And they don't just, like you were saying, use this as a as a political move or this doesn't... It would be really great if they were doing this in conjunction, not with Hong Kong studios, but with some mainland China studios and working mm -hmm. together. Uh, you know, maybe that's a pipe dream, though, that, you know, we're a couple decades off from ever happening. But I... Well, that... just say uh, in the report that additional Chinese partners are expected to be brought in. Uh, right now, it's the Tokyo Film Festival, and with it is a Tokyo market, contents market. So... I suspect, I suspect that the company chose this time intentionally to announce the project to mm. hopefully try and rope in a few partners while they're still in Tokyo. Yeah, well, that would that would be a good thing. I think if they could really, you know, get some get some partners, and then it can get some release in the mainland as well. And it doesn't end up being like, a, you know, a Chen Zen where it's so one sided that when you try and get it into another market, they're going to be like, no, nah, we don't want anything to do with that film. All right, our last little bit of news is an update from Mr. Ma on the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. Yes, um, I've been going to the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival for about, oh, since Friday. So that would be one, two, three, four, five. We're in day six now. Uh, thankfully, today's the start of a two-day break uh, of my uh, 30 film festival this year. Um we started on Friday night with two opening films, uh, Lover's Discourse and Revenge, A Love Story. We can talk about a little bit more about Revenge, A Love Story because um, Lover's Discourse has been has premiered in Busan and is also coming out in theaters soon. Um, I can tell you that it's a directorial debut of Derek Zhang and Jimmy Wan. Um, they're two of the screenwriters that, that their, uh, Pang Ho Chern often use, and Pang Ho Chern also produced the film. That's an ensemble romantic drama, and um, two stars from the film, Kate Se and Jackie Hearn, they showed up at the uh, premiere of the film, Hong Kong premiere of the film, on opening night at the festival, and they introduced the film. Uh, the film is okay. Uh, I think it's very well made. Um, and... Considering that it features Karina Lam's one of Karina Lam's possibly final performance uh, as a Hong Kong actress, uh, it was a very good way to go out because uh, she got to do her thing and she's very charming and she's very cute in the film. Um, it, it does have its problems, but most of it, I think, in a way, it's a very inventive film and it's kind of an omnibus, uh, what was an ensemble things, and it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but. Uh, I, for one, enjoyed it. I think it, it might be one of the best films of the year, maybe a top 10, uh, but part of it is only considering other films that's come out this year. Um, now, the other opening film no one has heard anything about is Revenge, A Love Story. This is the latest film by director Wong Cheng Po, <clears throat> who last directed uh, Ah So. Uh, if 
Paul, if you're getting bad memories from that movie, please feel free to stop me because, you know, it might bring back some very bad memories. It does uh, for me. I kind of blocked that out. <laughs> didn't that have? Didn't that also have Karina Lamb in it? Yes, that was because that was a film called film. And that one, and uh, Wang Chipo also directed Jiang Hu, if I may go even deeper. That's the movie that's famous for having the, or for had, once having the Edison's, Edison Chen dog sexy. Anyway, so now Wang Chipo returns after a six-year break um, with this uh, exploitation gory thriller. Uh, that was... Uh, that this is the second film of uh, Josie Ho's production company, A Five Two Films. Uh, they last made Dream Home, and this is kind of in the same vein. Um, pop star Juno Mac came up with the story, and I think approached uh, Miss Ho and to make this film, and then they decided to get Wang Jing Po, um, and also they cast uh, adult actress, very popular adult Japanese adult actress um, Aoi Soda to to be in the to play the uh, female lead. Um, I can tell you that this is a very violent film, very gory, um, very, how can I say, very intense uh, in certain parts. Uh, it's very loud. It, in fact, it's almost like, I don't know, we talked about the, the feud that Pan Ho Chen had with uh, Josie Ho regarding Dream Home. But you could, from what I've heard, it's almost, it's almost placed like what Josie Ho wanted Dream Home to be. Kind of a, an intense, uh, kind of a very violent, very rock and roll, uh, uh, kind of a horror movie, kind of a gory movie. Uh, and, you know, for some, for the, for the genre fans in the West, this is the type of film they would dig. You know, it's, you know, it has the Asia extreme elements. It has a porn star. It has nudity. It has violence. Um, but the problem is that Wang Ching Po also puts in this little bits of pretension, uh, what he does is that he splits the film. He also co-wrote the script, so it's perfectly his fault. Uh, he, he he splits the film into chapters, and these chapters all have these very pretentious titles. For example, this is a fake title. I'm just making it up. The devil uh, raises hands out of the grave and waves in the dark, dark air, you know, and things like that. It, it's always trying to strive for meaning all the time, but... Meanwhile, you know, you've got someone that's slicing pregnant women open and pulling out their fetuses and putting in the garbage cans. How do you, it's very, it's a very um, tough sell, I think. Well, it sounds like, from the way you described it, it's almost exactly like Dream Home. I mean, there's lots of violence, nudity. Um, yes, but, but the way that, that Dream Home approached it, 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 one, it had dark humor, a lot of dark humor. Um, and also, it it was done... You could tell it was um, it was much quieter film than one might than one might, remember, one might one might expect. This is very much a loud film, loud loud music, um, sound effects. You know, you not even the not even the fake scares. Just the whole movie is just loud, um, and it's really much an assault on the audience senses, both visually, orally. It just kind of keeps you. It keeps you, you know, keeps your attention, hooks your attention using those techniques, um, and. I wouldn't say it's intense because, oh my God, it's a scary film, but it's really just, it keeps assaulting you with what they have with the, you know, the digital sound and with the, the images and things like that. Um, if it has stuck to the exploitation film thing, um, plus with a little bit of sense of humor, I think it would have been, it would have been a fine film. It's uh, Wang Jingpo's best film since Zhang Hu because he doesn't really indulge in the slow motion or the kind of, what the hell was that kind of filming technique or those film gimmicks, you know, like the black cars crashing each other and also, or the, the constant slow motion in Jiang Hu. He uses very little of that here. Um, 
and the film is actually you know production value is okay for a very very low budget film uh, at least on a post production scale look fine um, but overall just kind of I would I wouldn't say it's successful um, but like it's a very strange film uh, I think the West you know Western audiences you know at, at genre film festivals they probably will like it but personally I'm not a huge fan of the film uh, so those are the opening films Um and those are the word. Those are two, I guess, that people would not know about. So that's why I'm spending the most time on those. Uh, I've also watched um, two of uh, director Satoshi Kon's films. Uh, we've talked about Satoshi Kon when he uh, he recently passed away. Uh, Kozo was here, and he didn't know a thing about it, so he didn't really say much. <laughs> and neither did did me or, or Paul. Uh, Paul, you say you've seen the Satoshi Kon film, right? Which one have you seen? Uh, Millennium Actress and Tokyo uh, Godfathers. Oh, okay, those are the two I haven't seen. I saw Perfect Blue and Paprika in the last couple of days, and I would say those are, you know, excellent films. Uh, I saw a Japanese film called Villain, um, which whose uh, lead actress, Eri Fukatsu, won the Best Actress Award at the Montreal World Film Festival, and uh, it's a better film than I expected to be. Um, it's quite an emotional drama about um, the outfall of a crime and how it affects all these people. Um, and then the film kind of, follow the love story about the killer and that didn't work as well for me but the film itself is very good i highly recommend that if you have a chance um on sunday i watched ho shao shen's uh time to live and a time to die um if you follow my blog entry i think the exact quote i use is it's a film that i admire more than like um ho shao shen is kind of an acquired taste and yeah. there's if i watch things- a ho shao shen film it's called a time to sleep <laughs> i did sleep 20 minutes and i'm i'm impressed with myself that I didn't sleep more actually um but it's it's a lot of things to admire you just look at it and it's really pretty and you know, and then, yeah, know I've, I've got some friends who really love his work i just i've never really been able to get into his style definitely i don't i definitely don't blame you um and then after that as we mentioned at the beginning of the show i watched uh, let the wind carry me the um documentary on cinematographer mark lee ping bing he he cold shot in the mood for love which he won the golden golden uh, golden horse. I almost saw the golden rock. I'm sorry. Uh, he won the golden horse award for best cinematography for that film, even though Christopher Doyle did uh, was part of the team. Uh, he also then he did he co-shot 2046, I believe. He also shot off Ho Shao Shen's films, um, and of course he had a accomplished career in Hong Kong. You know, uh, he actually did he actually shot Wing Chun which I guess not many people know about. Wing Chun, uh, Visible Secret, a uh, very long, illustrious career in Hong Kong. So this year's uh, focus is on him, and there was a seminar afterwards of him and the uh, the, the, the cinematographer of classic Hong Kong films, uh, such as Chinese Ghost Story. Uh, he also recently had a retrospective at the Hong Kong Film Archive. So that was interesting. I left early, sadly, to catch the next film, my Ex-Wife's Wedding, which is a Chinese commercial romantic comedy starring Alois Chen, uh, or Chen Kun, as someone, some might know. The film is um, okay. Um, it's a commercial comedy, uh, a lot of MTV style kind of thing, and there are a lot of um, amusing things, and the style is okay, and it's the romantic the romantic comedy thing is kind of silly, but, you know, Alice Chen is really good as, as the smug, the smug, uh, selfish asshole, I, I quoting the film, I'm not swearing. Um, you know, it's a fun film. Um, then we're catching up 
up to Saturday night. Uh, I also saw um, a film called The Drunkard. Um, it's an adaptation of a novel by a writer named Liu Yisheng. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that author, Paul. No. He's the first author that adapted the, the, the stream of consciousness style, writing style here in Hong Kong. His work, uh, I believe at least one of his work, uh, influenced Wong Kar Wai greatly when uh, I think it was in, in The Mood for Love. And you could definitely see the influence when you watch The Drunkard. The, the Drunkard is about a writer who, in the 60s, in the 60s Hong Kong, who, who kind of fails at writing serious literature. So then he turns to drinking and smoking and, and, and going from one woman to another. And uh, it's almost like a very, very low budget In the Mood for Love. Uh, imagine a director who can't afford Wong Kar Wai set but wants to make a Wong Kar Wai film. That's in a way the drunkard, but it's, in no way is it as boring as as it sounds. Um, acting's a little stilted, the writing's a little stilted, but you know, considering it's a directorial debut and uh, it's a very ambitious, it's a, a very ambitious project because of the novel that it's adapting. Uh, it's kind of okay. We'll get a theatrical release, and uh, this is something that you might want to check out at festivals just to give it a chance. Uh, remember, it's called a drunkard. Um, and I'm running out of breath. Okay. <laughs> and then I also saw Asian shorts, which you can read more about at my blog, uh, which we'll give the link at the end of the show. And I also saw Paprika, uh, directed by Satoshi Kon. Uh, great work, imaginative, really visually appealing. Uh, Inception obviously was inspired by this film. Um, and that's about all that's worth talking about. All right. Wow. Okay, so the festival will go on for another week and a half. Um, I will come back next week, I guess, with more reviews, short reviews. And uh, you can also keep uh, progress of what I watch on my blog. All right. We'll look forward to those. It's time to move on to our East Screen film for this week, and that is the latest from Barbara Wong called Perfect Wedding. So, Kevin, you haven't had a chance to see Perfect Wedding. No, no, otherwise I wouldn't be able to go about 10 minutes on my little monologue about yeah. festival. So I'm going to try and do my best to give a brief synopsis of the film. Um, this is the latest film starring Miriam Young and Raymond Lamb from TVB fame, who we mentioned in a film a few weeks ago, what was it, The uh, the Jade and the Pearl. And he and Miriam are the lead roles here. Miriam plays a lady, uh, middle-aged lady named Deanne, who's got her own business as a wedding planner, and she considers herself to be the top wedding planner and coordinator in Hong Kong. And uh, she gets very high-end clients as a result. And Raymond plays a young uh, lawyer who is also asked to officiate sometimes at weddings as sort of a justice of the peace. And it also stars Chrissy Chow, who has a small part here as Flora, one of the staff under uh, Miriam's character. And so basically the crux of the story is is that uh, boy meets girl, Miriam uh, bumps into, uh, Miriam's character Yan bumps into Fung one evening, they meet, they sleep, and life goes on, uh, sort of a one-night stand, until Raymond's character finds himself actually ending up working uh, as a justice of the peace for Miriam's company on sort of a uh, freelancer basis. And so comedy ensues, or so we would hope. 
Um, actually, this is just a mediocre romance comedy, uh, considering some of the stuff that Miriam's done in the past. But if you're looking at the stuff that Barbara Wong's done in the past, this film rocks. <laughs> so it really depends on how you're looking at it. If you're looking at it as sort of Miriam's work, it's kind of average. It's nothing, nothing, it's no great shakes. But based on what Barbara Wong's recently done, this is a huge, huge improvement. In fact, you don't really see her style or her hand here at all. And her her often partner, Lawrence Chang, I think also co-produced and, and was one of the people who uh, worked on the script as well. Um... My biggest problem with the film is I never really felt any chemistry between these two characters. They were both fine on their own in their characters, the characters they were playing. I just never really felt like it was a possibility of these two people hooking up. Um, it, it's a case where the the, the the female character, Miriam's character, Yan, is actually older, uh, considerably older than Raymond's character. And I think it's fine. I think, you know, going against a tradition where the male character always has to be older, it, it's fine to break that, but you want to do it by getting some people who have some chemistry. And I just didn't sense the chemistry between these two. Um, Chrissy Chow sort of plays the the third wheel here, and she kind of gets in, in the way between the two. Um, but basically, she's a lot of eye candy. I would have expected... You know, especially being since Barbara Wong is, I guess you could say she's a feminist. Um, you look at some of her documentary work, um, which is really very, very good, in fact. Um, things like uh, Women's Private Parts, uh, really well done. But what she does with Chrissy here is very, very standard. It, it was almost like um, Barbara was just phoning it in or she got somebody else to actually do the film because it's just what you would expect from like a Wong Jing or... Uh, another director who would use Chrissy in this very standard sort of sexualized way. And not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, it's just surprising that coming from her. Uh, it also stars Eric Cott as the ex-fiancé of Miriam's character, Yan. And the idea here is that he comes back into the picture and he sort of gets in the way between um, Yan and Fung as well. And that part's just not believable. You know, because if you, you look at Raymond Lamb, and he's a handsome dude. I mean, <laughs> he's one of the top guys in TVB right now. He's branching out into film. Uh, he recently had his own concert. He's got his concert DVD coming out. I mean, he, he, he's on top of the world right now. And Eric Cott, as sort of a foil, just doesn't work. <laughs> um, it's just not believable. And one of the things I mentioned after the film was they should have gotten Daniel Wu. Because, you know, he was partnered with Miriam in quite a few films, uh, Drink, Drank, Drunk, and, of course, the um, Love Undercover series. And they had a really good chemistry together, and I thought it would have been clever. And I don't think he's doing much these days. I, I don't think he's super busy. He hasn't been putting a whole lot out. So he could have done a cameo here, and I think it would have worked a lot better. Not that Eric Cott is bad, you know, as an actor. His role is kind of funny. It just it didn't seem like it would work. Um, for what they wanted him to do. You've also got cameos by a bunch of other people. Richard M comes back, and he's got a short cameo. You've got uh, Teresa Mo, uh, Bernice, uh, Bernice Lau, Kate Soy, uh, another actress who, whose name escapes my, my mind. They are sort of the little core girl group um, that surround Yan whenever she has problems. They are basically 
the the four ladies from Sex in the City. And whenever they're on screen, they're either shopping or getting their cougar act on. And <laughs> it's it's okay. I, I really like Teresa Mo. Um, I'm glad she's working again. I'd like to see a lot more of her. And, you know, she does, she, she, she was the best part of this film for me in terms of people who I was looking forward to seeing. Um, so what they were doing was, was kind of standard, kind of okay. Would have liked to see more of her. The other ladies, eh, I could have done without. Um, so yeah, just kind of overall average. Um, I'd say if you, if you like romantic comedies, if you like Miriam Young, you're going to want to watch this at some point. You can wait till video. It uh, doesn't look like a whole lot of people are rushing out to the cinemas. I don't think Miriam's got the drawing power that she used to have a few years ago, especially with the younger groups. Maybe, you know, she's kind of matured in age or maybe because she got married. I don't know um, what it is, but um, yeah, this definitely isn't as strong as some of the other stuff that she's done uh, in past years. Subtitle of the week from this film... Uh, not really a subtitle because the lines delivered in English, you can see it on the trailer. It is Kate Soy saying, smells like a baby. Smells like a baby! <laughs> and what the heck does that mean? I don't know. Because even after watching the film, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But that is the subtitle of the week. So, Perfect Wedding, not so perfect as a film, but if you like Miriam, if you like Raymond Lamb, you might want to check it out. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right, time to move on to our West Screen news. Uh, not a whole lot of West Screen news this week. Uh, first up, though, The Hobbit, a film we've talked a little bit about before here and there, is back in production in New Zealand. So, yay! Yay! Um, they, apparently, the unions have worked out their grievances with the uh, Hollywood production teams, and the Prime Minister has come out and basically said that uh, everything's a go. So, uh, we've got a link to the Variety article that you can take a look if you've got uh, Variety access. I think they can give, they can get like two free articles over there per month or something. Uh, and if you want more than that, you've got to be a member, but you can probably find this news elsewhere. People were Twittering about it and it's been all over the web recently. Good news uh, from my end because I'm excited to see The Hobbit. So hopefully, you know, between this and between the bankruptcy issues that uh, the studios are going through, they'll get things worked out and they'll get this production finally off the ground. Second bit of news, Mel Gibson and The Hangover 2. Kevin, what can you tell us about this? Yeah, um, you know, Mel Gibson hasn't been exactly the most, been the most balanced human being, I suppose, in the last few years. Um, he's had a lot of bad publicity and uh, something about him saying something about Jewish people. And that's uh, not repeated here. Anyway, so he was last um, kind of on the way for, to, for a comeback with a film, uh, Heart of Darkness. And then... Uh, he did the whole thing where he got the Russian model pregnant and then dumped her thing. You know, bad publicity all around. But now, um, Director Todd Phillips, who is directing a sequel to his comedy mega hit, The Hangover, um, decided to give Mr. Gibson another chance and cast him uh, in the film. 
But what happened was that the rest of the crew member did not have so much goodwill. And uh, there's a, were apparently a lot of infighting. And finally, Mr. Phillips had to let Mel Gibson go. So then now Neil Neeson will be replacing his role, which reportedly is uh, something like a very angry tattoo artist. I mean, it sounds hilarious. It sounds like Mel Gibson is a perfect choice for it. But uh, I'm still happy with, you know, the whole point is getting a serious actor to play this really silly role. And I'm still glad that... Liam Neeson is doing doing it. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see him uh, do his comedic thing, uh, even though I was looking more forward to Mel- Mr. Gibson doing the role. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Do you think this is one of those things where, you know, sins, your past sins should not affect your work? Or is this one of those things where the cast was right, they were offended by what he's done, and that, you know, if the cast says, I don't want this guy on my set, then the director should listen to his family. What do you think? Well, yeah, uh... I don't know, you know, it's, I, I guess, you know, everybody deserves a second chance, but I think with Mel, it's like the eighth chance. I don't know. <laughs> he, he's kind of made quite a few mistakes. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, a film is a group project, despite what people say with regard to who's producing, who's directing, or who the big star is. And in order, you know, for films to work well, people have to be able to work together and and get along together. And if you don't feel that somebody respects you on the film, despite what your job is, you know, that can make things just kind of hard to work through. So I guess I can kind of understand, you know, the the perspectives that the crew might have. Um, If you're working with a guy that you think, you know, thinks you're dirt or thinks you're trash because of your background or your religion or whatever... And I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case, but, you know, that may be just the case when Mel is intoxicated, which might work based on the title of the film. Who knows? Um, he could be more intoxicated than he's sober, Yeah, you know, on a normal day. So, yeah, that could be troublesome. Uh, you know, it, the film itself, though, The Hangover, I mean, I didn't see The Hangover till it was on DVD, and people had been raving about it for a long time before I actually sat down and, and watched it. It was... I remember we were talking before how I like to go, when I go back to the States, I just go to Blockbuster and I rent like a ton of movies and just watch stuff back to back. It's one of the ways I like to relax when I'm on vacation. And that was one of the films that I got when I was, when I was there. And, and I watched it on DVD and I thought it was great. It was, I was really, you know, so, sometimes I'm skeptical when films have a lot of hype behind them. And, but I really, really enjoyed it. And I thought it was unique and most of the cast were still you know, they're still kind of relative unknowns. They're not superstars. I mean, Zach Galifianakis is getting more and more play now, and uh, the the other actor who was in the A team, and and but most of the guys are, you know, they they weren't big superstars. Is what is what I'm saying. But now they're going to do a two, and it's like this kind of a movie. I don't think needs a two, mm-hmm. because all a two is going to be doing is trying to top one. You right. know. And that's an extremely hard thing to do for a film. And it's yeah. just, I think all we're going to end up getting is sort of a, you know, even more crudeness. And it was funny the first time because it was stuff you weren't expecting. You know, like when the guy pops out of the trunk and, uh, is, you know, just beating on everybody. And he's got, you know, he's, he's just bare butt naked. Um, it, it's funny stuff like that because you don't know what, what to expect going in. But now it's kind of like, I don't know, I remember back in the day, I don't know if you ever saw, there was, uh, you had Porky's, and then you had, you know, Porky's 2, and, and a whole lot of thing, and then in the in the 90s, what was it, it was, uh, uh, 
is it American Pie? Or what road is trip, it? road trip. No, not road trip. The there's a there's a there was a movie that was like, uh, it was kind of like the what Porky's was in the eighties. It this was in the, I think American it's, Pie. Yeah. It's, it's American, American Pie, and it's got like yes. a slew of sequels. And the only thing connecting the sequels is that like they all star Eugene Levy, in mm-hmm. sort of a supporting role, and. So yeah, it's like you get this one that's kind of innovative, it pushes the boundaries and it, you know, it establishes new things, you know, like I think wasn't it American Pie that established the concept of the MILF, <laughs> I think. And and so you you get this thing that just comes from out of the blue. And The Hangover was that, you know, it, it did that. And just to do a sequel, I think it's I don't know, my expectations are very low for a sequel. I could be wrong. You know, Liam Neeson, okay. We'll see. We'll see what he does. All right. Our third bit of news. Uh, James Cameron to make Avatar 2 and 3. Um, so, I don't know, Kev. Are we ready for that? Are we, are we ready for more blue people? Jesus, he's barely done the first movie. Well, these Blu-ray and the DVD releases. I mean, what's he going to do? I mean, um, I don't really go too much into the news because there's not much details about it. Because um, it literally just came out as we were starting to record. Um, there's nothing about the plot yet. Um, Cameron said that he, he planned the film as a trilogy, but I'm not sure what trilogy potential I saw in the film. I thought the original film itself is pretty complete. Um, even though, yes, I saw a little bit grounds for a sequel. I thought, you know, what it had was enough. Um, and I thought it was a good time for Cameron to kind of go back to, uh, to pull back a little bit and come back to live action filmmaking and stuff that he was... Really good at in the 90s, but no, apparently not. He is going to continue this 3D thing and make, you know, sequels and sequels and sequels. Um, the little comfort I have is that, you know, James Cameron is quite good at sequels. Uh, Terminator 1, Terminator 2 is far better than Terminator 1 and his uh, Alien sequels. I, I'm not saying Aliens is superior, but it was a hell of a ride. Um, and uh, it definitely isn't. Uh, a case where sequels is worse than original film, so that's the only comfort I have. But the whole thing about you know making a second and third film at once, not exactly a good idea to me. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I you know, I think that every director likes to say that they've planned their film as a trilogy, and I bet if you talk to the guys over at The Hangover, they'll say, "Yeah, we planned it as a trilogy." <laughs> um, you know, I, Lucas had the same argument. You know, he, he had planned this out as this long thing and he, you know, he had long thought out that Luke and Leah were, you know, brother and sister. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Go back and, and watch Star Wars one and watch them smooching and tell me they, he planned that out. Um, I think it's just a case of the film does exceptionally well and they get the green light and they go ahead and, oh yeah, it, it, I've planned it this way, you know? Um, it's only planned that way when the money's there. When the money's not there, it's like, nope, this is it. It's a standalone thing, and I'm not going to go back to it. So, I don't know. You know, uh, he hasn't done a trilogy before. He has done sequels, um, but, you know, Aliens, which a lot of people like better than the original Alien, he didn't do the original Alien, um, Mm -hmm. and he didn't come back to do uh, the third Alien or the fourth Alien. So... Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm a bit skeptical. I'm a bit hesitant. I liked Avatar for what it was. I don't know if I need more Avatar. Um, I I you know I'll have to wait and see. Uh, it would have to be an amazing story. And I remember one of the things that we talked about, and a lot of people talked about, was that actually the story of Avatar is not that amazing. 
Mm -hmm. um, and I think we've had so much 3D now that by the time they do get around to getting a sequel out, we're going to be done with that. So he's going to really have to up the game in terms of story because we're not going to be that impressed. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I do expect he'll keep playing with the technology and things will get better. But I mean, unless he's going to be actually poking us, you know, in the eyeball with <laughs> stuff, uh, I, there's not much more they can do with 3D, I think. Care for what you wish for, Paul. <laughs> no, I just to add, um, the Avatar Extended Edition Steel Ray, uh, Steelbook Blu-ray is now on YesAsia.com. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kevin. You're such a ham. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our West Screen films for this week. Uh, we have two films to talk about. Uh, my film is actually not a film yet it's a video first and it's due to be released as a film this friday and that is the film monsters now monsters got a special release via itunes which you could rent the normal version for 9.99 or the hd version for 10.99 and i remember seeing the trailer for this some time ago uh somewhere out there on the interwebs and was kind of excited because the trailer as you watch this and we'll have a link for the trailer on the website. It's a very stylistic mix of something like Cloverfield and District 9 and possibly War of the Worlds. And when you watch the film, that's what it kind of tries to be, but it never really delivers on the premise. Um, so the basic story is that at some point in the future, there's a probe that goes into space and it encounters alien organisms on the, some object in space, and that object ends up crashing in Mexico. And the alien organisms begin thriving in the environment, and it creates this huge infected zone south of the American border, you know, Texas area, uh, all throughout central Mexico. And in this area, these giant monsters uh, start, these alien life forms start emerging, and they start attacking um, the border areas trying to encroach on more and more territory. And so that's the premise, is that this there's this infected area, the borders have become war zones as the U.S. military and the Mexican military try and con contain these giant monstrosities as they try and um, move into, into occupied territory. Um, and in, in all of this, you basically have these two characters, one who is a photojournalist, and the other who is the daughter of the company that the photo the, the company owner that the photojournalist works for and they are both down in mexico and uh, the boss order, orders the photojournalist to get his daughter back to the united states um, and because this is basically war that's going on um, it's very very he, it's very very difficult um, the, their original mode of transport uh, becomes unavailable because their passports are stolen. And so they are forced to sort of take this um, this underground railway, if you will, through the infected zone to try and reach the United States border. And so that's the premise. These two people uh, traveling through this this war zone, basically, but it's a war zone of giant monsters and the U.S. military. Um, it's a 95, it's a 90 minute film. 
and it translates into about 75 minutes of boring and 15 minutes of, okay, that's kind of cool. Hmm. Um, the thing is, is that, that, you know, as I said, this takes a sort of, a, sort of a Cloverfield approach. It's not all handheld, thankfully, um, but there are moments where there is some of that. Um, it's, tr- it's kind of like District 9 in that it's taking a sort of very realistic approach of, okay, what if this happened? Um, and it's, you know, there, there's some strong elements of War of the Worlds. Um, the original War of the Worlds, not the Tom Cruise uh, version. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting stuff that's going on in the background. Um, there's, there's like television clips, there's news on the radio, there's like cartoons of these aliens and, you know, what you're supposed to do if there's a military attack and the United States is using some kind of gas or some kind of chemical agent. So everybody's always going to have gas masks with them. And the film really needs more focus on that because what will happen is, it'll start showing like the television clip and then it'll quickly cut away to the main characters and them droning on about their problems. And they've each got their problems. The, the photojournalist, the male protagonist, you know, he has a son, but he's not allowed to see his son because, uh, the, the wife, you know, they broke up after two months and it wasn't his wife, it was his girlfriend and she married some other guy. And so he's not really allowed to be the father of this kid who's his son. (laughs) <laughs> um, and the, the, the girl's getting married and she doesn't really love her husband and they're having problems. And so it's all this human drama and that's fine. If you want to do a story about human drama, you know, set it in Vietnam or set it in Iraq or set it in, you know, some other modern world conflict and don't set it in this sort of fantastical thing with, you know, with these monsters and these aliens and, you know, cause when you do that, nobody cares about the problems of these people. Get back to the freaking aliens. That's what people hmm. want to see. And you never, they never really show that. There's some moments of tension, you know, where they're out in the Mexican uh, jungle and, and things, but you never really see anything. Everything's always very dark when stuff's going on. It's very hidden. Um, and mostly it's just the camera following these two as they trek through the jungle. So it's, it's, it's got a very low budget and, it just looks even more so when you compare it with something that was done as an independent project like District 9. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's worth a rent if you don't mind slow-paced films. And I'm saying a regular rent. Um, I rushed out and watched this at the sort of inflated rent price because I really wanted to see it. And I know this isn't going to play in Hong Kong anytime soon. Um, and I like that the fact that films are doing this. I hope more and more films do this where you can maybe opt to pay a little bit more to see, to rent it before it hits the theaters. And this, you know, so if you're somebody, you know, overseas and you're not going to get the film for six months or a year, uh, this, this provides a nice alternative. Um, so I'd like to see more of this and especially if they keep, you know, keep the rates pretty reasonable because if it's like, you know, $9 us, you and your partner, your family can sit there and watch it. And it's going to be a lot cheaper than the movie tickets in the long run. So, more of that is good. Um, Monsters, again, if you're a huge sci-fi fan, you can, you know, watch it. If not, you'd probably want to go back and watch Cloverfield or District 9 again. I was working in the lab. 
my eyes beheld an eerie sight, for my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash, he did the monster mash, the monster mash, it was a graveyard smash, he did the mash, it caught on in a flash, he did the mash, he did the monster mash. From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from their humble abode To get a jolt from my electrode All right, Kevin, you're going to talk to us about the film Let Me In, is that correct? Yes, um, I got to go see this vampire film last week. Uh, Paul, didn't get a chance to see this, I assume? I have not seen it, and actually I want to see the original version before I watch the remake. Yes, I, I, I also watched uh, Let the Right One In. Well, actually, I've only seen about half of that film because I rented it on iTunes. And I ran out of the 24-hour limit, so I saw half the film. And I went into Let Me In. I uh, wanted to watch the rest of the story. So uh, Let Me In is a remake by uh, co-review director Matt Reeves. Uh, kind of a totally coincidence, totally not, not intentional. Um, and he wrote and directed this remake. Uh, he transports the story from his original Swedish setting to uh, New Mexico. Uh, I've never been to New Mexico, so I'm not sure if it really does get as cold as Sweden in the winter. Uh, but anyway, the story's fairly intact. Uh, it's about a young boy, a young bullied boy who was um, who was in kind of a dysfunctional family situation uh, with a single mother, and um, a new neighbor kind of strikes his interest. Uh, it's a girl, uh, and then turns out that she's a vampire, but nevertheless, they fall in love. Uh, very interesting idea, uh, at least in the original uh, film, and uh, that idea is carried here. It's a fairly faithful remake. Uh, I'm not going too much into detail because, uh, again, the film, the original film's been out for a while, so I don't think I have to go too much into the plot. Um, while the uh, remake itself is very strong, it doesn't really justify its own existence because, again, it's uh, almost like a direct remake of the original. Uh, it does remove a few. I never read the book, but uh, it does remove a few uh, plot elements and replace them with new ones. Um, but meanwhile, it also transports scenes directly uh, at points from the original f- book and the film. Um, but the stuff they added in works quite well. And uh, even though it is, it doesn't really justify why it needs to be remade it's still a very very good remake just partly because the content is so strong and matt reeves you know fully respects it and he doesn't screw it up um he cutting there's a, a certain plot line in the original film uh they that's cut for the american version replaces something else i thought that it was it's a little more effective here um i didn't really that wasn't really my favorite part of the original um, and anyone who's seen the, the both versions would know what I'm talking about. Um, it also doesn't really go for, uh, like the original, it doesn't really go for easy scares. It doesn't go for the, you know, things suddenly pop out. It does once, it does have a pretty big scare once or twice at least. Uh, but it's done after building tension uh, very, very well. Um, it is not a consistently horror, it's not a consistently, consistently scary film, but it is a very atmospheric film and most of it is actually the love story between a young boy and a vampire girl um and both of those balance very well when it's scary it's very scary but when it's you know when it's the romance it's actually quite poignant and the child actors are excellent and the love story is quite good and at points you actually 
the bullying scenes of the boy are actually scarier than the, the vampire scenes. And I think that's kind of an interesting uh, note to bring up. And I'm not sure if that was, you know, that kind of care, that kind of happened original, but I think it's even more effective here. Uh, some of the bullying scenes are actually more violent in idea than the than the vampire stuff. Uh, with that said, the original film kind of opt for a wider, wider look at the the vampire scenes, um, so that they don't need to one didn't need to spend too much money on them uh, on the effects, and I think it worked quite well because it leaves a lot to the imagination. Sadly, the Hollywood remake uh, uses a little too much CGI in the vampire scenes, um, too much. Um, Stuff they're obviously not real. There, I guess they're working on limited budget, and it's obvious that they had to work with cheaper CGI. And it's quite obvious here, and kind of told me of the illusion. But nevertheless, um, let me in. It's actually a very, very strong remake, um, and I think it's one of the best horror movies of the year, Paul. I think I highly recommend you go see it. Uh, with or without watching the original. Yeah, um, yeah. I've I've actually listened to a couple other podcasts talking about this film and. The general consensus does seem to be, though, that um, a lot of people say they like the original a little bit better, and that this one actually does some... It, it changes a few things, but that a lot of it is basically a shot-for-shot shot remake in some places. I mean, almost literally. Yes, some spots are shot-for-shot, uh, shot, but at the same time, it's not that lazy because it does, again, take away some things, and it does shoot certain sequences at different ways. There's a very, very cool sequence shot from inside a car. Um, that's the example where I talk about the tension, the, the tension built very well and the and the way it, 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 it pays off visually is excellent. It's something that the original film always didn't have the budget to do um, and wasn't and didn't have the style to carry it. So or didn't have the style to make it work. And it, it worked very well here. Yes. Um, with remakes, I mean, you can't avoid having doing little literal carry things. Uh, some of it, I've been told, is from the book, not from original film. So, some points you can't really blame Matt Reeves, but um, I do want to give him credit for for you know pulling off a successful remake. As far as remake goes, it's quite successful. Alright, I have a couple comments from our show last time. A uh, nice comment from Mr. Marco Sparmberg, who was busy at work on his, uh, his uh, Dim Sum Westerns production, which we talked about last time. David Harris also made a brief mention that the UK Blu-ray of Battle Royale is due for release next month, and it will be an all-region version. So that's, a, that's good news for Blu-ray fans out there of that, that film. Uh, and if you haven't seen that film, I'd strongly recommend it. One of my favorite Japanese films. Um, and he says, in talking about 3D, don't, to, don't forget to mention Jackass 3D. Um, I kind of was hoping to forget to mention <laughs> Jackass 3D, but thanks, well, but David, you know, Jack for bringing it up so that we had to talk about it. Yeah, we have to talk about it because Jackass 3D is coming out in Hong Kong in uh, mid-November. Uh, I will f I will firmly let you be the one to watch and review that. Um, <laughs> I've never seen an episode of that. I've only seen the Hong Kong variant, which is called Chi Sin, 
which is uh, you can get out there on um, DVD in some in some form, and it was basically MTV's attempt to do that format in Hong Kong, but very seriously toned down. Um, and you get like Daniel Wu and and uh, some of his buddies out there doing crazy stuff, but nothing as crazy as as the guys on Jackass apparently. And I I have no interest in watching that film, especially with the 3D tag on it. So that'll be all you, Mister Ma. With your real friend, Mr. Mr. Fox. Yes, I, I aim to be so. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thanks for the comments. Again, if you would like to leave us comments, you can do so over at our website at www.concast.com. That's one word. And you can also email us um, at concast at hotmail.com. I'm hoping to get a Gmail account set up in the very near future. If you'd like to send us an audio file with a question or a comment, we'll play that here on the show. And you can send that through to us on the email. You can also follow us over on Twitter. Um, you can find my Twitter account over on the website. And you can follow Mr. Ma at twitter.com slash thegoldenrock. Um, and you can also find Mr. Ma in some various places where he sometimes, when he gets the gumption, writes a blog or two and has mm. some words to put together. Uh, where can they find those words at, Mr. Ma? You can find those words over at lovehkfilm.com. Uh, the Golden Rock, me and uh, Mr. Sandro, another reviewer on that site, we have been reviewing, uh, updating the blogs quite often uh, in these last two weeks, and I will continue to update as much as I can during the Asian Film Festival since I've got my shiny iPad. I do apologize for the lack of photos and lack of links. Um, if you do need more information about the films, please do look at www.hkaff.asia. But you will more likely see me being active on Twitter as I am out and about uh, moving from one theme to another during screenings. All right, that sounds good. Um, so, yeah, uh, next show we were scheduled to talk about on episode 47 Don Quixote. But as we mentioned at the top of this show, that's going to be a big no. So I'm not sure what we'll be talking about next week, but we'll find something to talk about, and we'll get, to get back in touch with Mr. Ma and his final thoughts on the film festival. When is the film festival closing? The final date, I believe, is November 8th, and there are some added shows uh, after the, the, the actual festival. So please, as I mentioned, check out the website. Uh, yeah, I will be watching films all the way up to closing films. All so right. I'll have constant updates during the next two weeks. So we'll have some more festival news to talk about between now and then and whatever else happens to pop up. So as always, until next time, we will wish you good viewing and we'll see you then. See you at the movies, everybody. And you know, if you do start your own award, the Golden Rock, <laughs> I think it should be for the biggest box office plunge after opening. <laughs> you know, it sinks like a stone. <laughs> no, but it wouldn't be golden, sir. <laughs> what the hell is this? James Cameron to make Avatar 2 and 3 for Fox. Sweet. Mm. Well, we can talk about that. Yeah. You want to... It's going to star Bill O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
and Glenn Beck as a Navi. <laughs> or no, Glenn Beck would be the general guy. He's like, yes, and then I Bill Riley. people. Yeah. And then uh, Brute Bill Riley can play the uh, his buddy. <laughs> you people just need to wake up. These blue people are coming and they're taking your jobs. They're taking over your planet. <laughs> uh... Oh, yeah.